Well, good morning. It is, uh, it's so great to be with you guys this morning. I'm just, I'm honored and I'm excited um, just to be a part of, of what God is doing. And it's more than just the, uh, the two cups of coffee uh, followed by the latte that I had uh, within the last three hours I've been awake for. But uh, I'm excited because of just what God is doing in this church. And I love this church. I got saved at this church. I got baptized at this church. Uh, I received uh, a calling to go into ministry in this church. Uh, I spent every summer vacuuming these floors, mowing those fields out there. I, I love this church. And I believe in this church. I believe in, in, in what God is doing. I believe uh, that he's given this church an incredible history and an incredible past. But, but the future is the best part. I'm excited for where God is taking this church. I, I believe in the leadership in, in Jared and Ann and, and Kevin and Emily and James and the entire staff, the volunteers, you the body of this church. I mean, it is incredible to see what God is doing. It was interesting. I was looking back over some journals that I'd written over the last couple of years, and it was this week, two years ago, I was, um, I was at the gym. I know I look good. You can tell. Um, <laughs> I was at the gym, though. I was working out, and I, I got out of the parking lot, and I got into my car, and I felt so clearly the Lord said, you just need to drive out to Evergreen, and you just need to pray for the church. And it was before Jared and Ann came, and I knew that the transition was on the horizon. I didn't know what it looked like or where it would be going, but I felt so clearly God just say, you need to go pray for the church. And I drove out here, and I just parked in this lot over here, and I just began to pray. And it's something that I do from time to time. If I have a, a spare moment and, and I'm kind of in the air, I'll just pull up in the parking lot and just pray over this church because I'm excited for what God wants to do in this church. I'm excited for what God wants to do in the city. I believe this church is going to be so instrumental in, in where the Lord uh, leads the city of Hillsborough, Washington County. I'm excited to see that. And um, really excited to be with you this morning. Let's, let's pray before we get started. God, we, um, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, there's nothing like your word. The Lord, in those moments when, when, when all feels lost, that we can come to your word and, and, and be found again. Lord, in those moments where we feel so helpless, Lord, that we find you our helper. Lord, in, in those times that, that, Lord, we're just on cloud nine, that we can open up your word and we can celebrate with you. God, my prayer this morning is what you prayed over your disciples in Luke 24, that, that, Lord, you would open our minds to your scriptures. God, as we get into this word today, Lord, as we discover more of who you are, Lord, my prayer is that I would, I would dissipate, I would fade away, and, Lord, your words would, would truly echo forth this morning. God, we love you, and uh, we thank you for a chance to worship you. We thank you for a chance to come before you and, and get to be the church, the bride, get to be in community. It's in your holy name that we pray all these things, God. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to turn to a Numbers chapter 20. Uh, Numbers 20 is where we're going to begin uh, this morning. And uh, several nights ago, we had this great moment in the Stanton household. Uh, we have a, a 10-month-old daughter, and uh, she is so full of life. She is so passionate, but she hates to sleep. And we, for the life of us, can, cannot get her to sleep. And we figured, you know, by 10 months, she'd start to kind of settle into a system and we'd be able to get her down and, you know, things would work out fine. And, and we are meticulous. We are over the top about having her in bed uh, by her bedtime. It doesn't matter what we're doing. I mean, we are leaving. If it's a movie, if it's whatever. I mean, we are, we are walking out so that we can have her in bed by her bedtime, most nights of the week at least. And, um... We, the other night, we put her into bed, and we, we go through this process of trying to get her to sleep. And 
there's just nothing that, that we found that worked. And so I'm, I'm online, and I'm coming across some different things, and I discovered there is an app on, on your cell phone for helping babies fall asleep. And isn't that great? I mean, there's an app for everything nowadays. And uh, so I put this app, and it's this, this uh, lullaby radio station that's supposed to help babies sleep. And I put this on, and um, I'm trying to rock my daughter to sleep, and I have her bottle, and I finally just, I finally, like, get her to, to kind of fall asleep in my arms, and I pick her up, and I put her into the crib, and I, I turn around, and I turn off the light, and I turn back around, and she's standing up wide awake over the edge, just smiling at me with this pacifier grin in her face. And, and literally, as this moment happens, that song comes on this, this app, and it's that, um, that Somewhere Over the Rainbow song, but it's, it's the, the Hawaiian guy that does it on the ukulele. And, uh, and then he kind of goes into Wonderful World. And, uh, man, bedtime just turns into a dance party. And my <laughs> wife comes in, and we just have this great moment together. And we're just, we're just dancing with our daughter and just listening to the music and trying to get her to go back to sleep. And, and finally, after like an hour, we get her to go back to sleep. And I, I, I put her down, and I take the dog for, you know, her nightly walk. And we have this dog. She's ridiculous. She's a golden doodle which is a mix between a poodle and a golden retriever. And um, she, she's embarrassing. She's, to walk her is demasculinizing for a man. I mean, every night I, I wait till the sun goes down because I'm so embarrassed by this dog. And we, uh, we just got her a haircut because it's summertime, and she, she looks like a polar bear when she's all grown out. She looks like a sheep. And so we cut her hair, and we decided to leave a little bit of a mohawk on top. Uh, so she's just shaved down to really nothing, but the mohawk looks kind of more like a pompadour. And um, I'm walking my dog, and I'm just laughing because I have this, this great moment with my daughter and with my, my wife. And I'm thinking this thought in my mind. And I'm just thinking, God, does it, does it get any better than this? I mean, life is so rich with you. And does it, get, does it get any better than this? The next day, I was at a, a funeral at our church. There was a, a, a man who, um, 40 years old, just, just lost his wife. And... Um, the really difficult thing, if that wasn't hard enough, is um, a year ago, his, his son passed away. I just thought, man, to be in that place, to go from, from having a family to, to now being on your own, he doesn't have any other children, and to be at that place, and, and you know, as I heard him talk, he talked about his love for the Lord, and, and I was so encouraged by that. But this morning, I want to ask us this question. Do we love God more than we love life? Do we love him more, more than anything else? And, and we look at the life of Moses, and we see some incredible things taking place. Uh, it begins in Numbers 20. And to kind of give you some background of what's taking place, um, the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt. God is, is, is on the scene. And in typical Israelite fashion, they're complaining once again. They're upset because they have no water, and they're revolting against God, and they're saying these kinds of things like, we were better off dead in Egypt than alive here in the desert. And I love the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and, and they, they just go to the Lord and they begin to pray. And this is what we discover. This is God's response, how he instructs them. Numbers 20, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Take the staff, you and your brother Aaron, and gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he had commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. 
But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I have given them. There's three things that, that stand out to me in, the, in this text. And the first is this, is, is I'm struck with, with what kept Moses out of the promised land. If you remember the story of Moses, before God called him to lead his, his people, Moses was a murderer. And that's so encouraging to me in the sense that, man, God can use the most imperfect people to care about his plan and to bring about his kingdom. But it's not the fact that he's a murderer that keeps Moses out of the promised land. It's, it's the fact that he wasn't obedient to God. Here's Moses. I mean, here's this man who, who gives his entire life to following God. He spends 40 years in the desert. And God says, Moses, you're not going to enter the promised land because you disobeyed me in this one moment. And yet Moses is not embittered by that. In fact, in a moment, we're going to see that, that he goes on to bless the people of Israel rather than curse them. And, and you see this frustration. I mean, he, this act of rebellion was not an act of rebellion against God. You see that it was frustration against the people. And he calls them rebels. And it's obviously that he's thinking, as he's swinging this stick at this rock, he's thinking, man, I wish that this was some of your heads that I was swinging at, not some rock. But you see that Moses, his attitude is so different than, than yours and mine. Um, for, for seven years, I got to be a youth pastor, uh, like what Kevin's doing now, working with student ministries. And, and I loved uh, the job. I mean, there's just nothing like hanging out with teenagers and just getting to, to shape them and influence them and lead them to Christ. And uh, there was this event that we did every year called Creation Fest. Some of you might have heard of it. Some of you might have gone to it. It's up uh, in the Gorge, in the Gorge Amphitheater up in, in George Washington. Not Gorge Washington, George Washington. And uh, every year we would take our students up there. And we would, we would set up camp, and we'd spend four days just listening to, to Christian music. And they would have some of the biggest bands uh, in Christian music come and play. And there was these incredible worship leaders and speakers. And it was just this awesome event. It was awesome for our students. It was not awesome for their youth pastor. And here's the reason why. Uh, we had usually around 70 students, uh, 70 middle schoolers and high school students, that were discovering the opposite sex for the first time. Taking them up into the middle of nowhere with 25,000 other Christians, it's really easy for them to kind of disappear into a crowd. And we had strict rules about this. We had to make sure that they were always in groups of, of, of five because, you know, four could be two couples. And so we said five, you know, there's got to be at least one solid student in, in five. And so we said groups of five stick together. Um, you know, we always had them check in and report. And our, our leaders were really active and just being with them all the time. But, you know, stuff happens. And then on top of it, you're with 25,000 other people. And, and I've watched Dateline NBC. I, I, I've seen the How to Catch a Predator. I realize that, that not everyone claims to be who they are. And not every single one of those 25,000 people uh, really are probably walking steadily with the Lord. And so for four days, I'm like a mall cop, you know. I'm like walking around, patrolling, making the rounds, making sure our students are just safe. And, you know, and on top of that, it's, it's 95 to about 105 all day. And there's no shade. And we would get up there with this, we had this production team that put on the entire event. They'd, they'd arrive a day early. They, they got this like 500 square foot camo netting. I mean, we had this, this amazing production. We had trailers and vehicles. I mean, we had it dialed in. But at the end of the day, you're just sitting in your sweat. And after four days, I'm just, I'm just done. I'm ready uh, to be home. I'm ready to take a shower. 
I'm ready just to, to sleep. I'm ready just to relax. And we would get into the cars, and it's about a five-hour drive back. And I would, we'd always stop at this one gas station, and I would get this, like, 95-ounce Mountain Dew, which was my coping mechanism, I mean, just to kind of get me through that drive. And if we could have played the silence game with those kids, we would have. I mean, it was just, at the end, you're just done. And we'd roll into the parking lot of our church, and we would always give our parents just a, a flyer to say, this is what time we'll be back. Please don't be late. Uh, we, would, we would have students, no joke, we'd have students call on the way home, not once but twice, to let them know, hey, Mom, Dad, this is our ETA. This is where we're going to be. Please don't be late. Ezra will kill me if you are late. And inevitably, every time, there was some, some, some parent that would come in, not an hour late, not two hours late, but three hours late. I wanted to kill them. I mean, it was just every fiber and ounce of my body just, just, I didn't, I didn't want to be a pastor that day. I just, I didn't even want to be a Christian in those moments. I just, you know, the last thing in the world that I wanted to do was to bless that parent. And we're talking four days. Moses, 40 years. But at the end of his life, this is, this is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 33. And I'll give you a moment just to turn there. And we see Moses giving blessing instead of bitterness. We see him, instead of cursing the people, he's encouraging them. And Deuteronomy chapter 23, excuse me, 33, uh, toward the end in, in verse 26, this is what Moses says to the people of Israel. He says, There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides across the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out your enemies before you, saying, destroy them. So Israel will live in safety. Jacob will dwell secure in a land of grain and new wine, where the heavens drop dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you, and you will tread on their heights. Recently, as I was reading this in, in, in my journal, I just, I was reading the story of Moses, and I was thinking about his response, and I was thinking about Numbers 20 and what he says there. And, and I wrote this in my journal, and I, I apologize if this is too blunt or too honest before you, but this is really just what I was going through in these moments. And I, I wrote this. I said, these are the final words Moses records before he goes to Mount Nebo, not to enter, but to look at the promised land. As I read this, every part of me is frustrated on behalf of Moses. God, how is this fair? Simultaneously, I wonder, how is he not jealous? How is he not jaded? How is he still faithful and obedient? I understand there was the incident in Kadesh in Numbers 20, which we just read about. But that seems to stem more out of an anger toward the people than out of blatant disobedience to you, God. However, because of this decision, you make it very clear that Moses will not enter the promised land. And Moses is okay with that? How? His entire life has been dedicated to the cause of leading the Israelites into the promised land. And now he himself doesn't even get to go. Why? I'm so grateful that I didn't stop reading the scriptures there that day. I'm so grateful that I didn't just close my Bible and just go about my day because I, I think that frustration would have been kind of just stemming in me for the rest of the day. I, I turned over to the next chapter, and I want us to do the same. Deuteronomy 34, verse 1, it says this. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of the Pisgah across from Jericho. 
There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Nephetiti, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When I said, I will give you, I will give to your descendants. I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. And skip down to verse 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord had sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. After reading this next chapter, I again wrote this in my journal. Wow, I am speechless. I am humbled. I have been shut up. Moses didn't care about the promised land because he cared about something so much bigger, something so much greater, the creator of the promised land. His focus was not on a place or a destination, but on the Lord, Yahweh himself. Moses had literally seen God, and now he had seen the promised land. And there was no comparison. As I was reading these, these verses, I, I just attempted to put myself into the scriptures. And I imagined what that conversation between Moses and God was like that day. What went through their minds, what was taking place, what was transpiring. Now, I don't for a moment want to attempt to add to the scriptures, but this is just my thinking, is what this conversation went like. Imagine after a long time of silence, Moses finally said something like this to God. He said, God, this, this is incredible. It's everything I ever imagined it would be, and then some. Everything that Caleb and Joshua, when they came back with the other 10 spies, said it would be, but even better, God. God, I, I, I can just picture it. The kids, they're gonna love it. Over there, the tribe of Benjamin, they're gonna live. And over there, Nephetiti, they're gonna, they're gonna raise their children and their, their grandchildren. And over there, Asher, they're, they're gonna have these amazing vineyards. God, it's gonna be incredible. God, every night as I've, as I've laid in bed, and I've thought about what this moment would be like to see the promised land for the first time. I've, I've dreamed and I've imagined and, and I've pictured. But God, this is even better than that. Yet God, this doesn't compare to seeing you. That moment that, that I got to see you when, when you passed before me, God, that was far greater than the promised land. You see, for Moses, he, he had seen the promised land, but he'd also seen God. And the reason that he's not embittered, the reason that he's not jaded or jealous or even upset is because his focus was not on a destination. It was not on a land. It was not on a place. It was on God himself. And that was everything to Moses. That's why Moses could live all these years leading the Israelites in circles in the desert and be okay with it. Because he wasn't doing it for himself. He wasn't doing it um, for anything other than, than, than God alone. 
And I love what happens is, is we come to the, the, the end of Deuteronomy and, and I, I find myself asking these three questions of my own life. Am I more fixated on the promises of God or on God himself? Am I more fixated on, on the places or the destinations or on the Lord? Do I care more about, about a vision or an idea or, or, or do I truly, honestly want God more than I want life? That just like that man this week that I encountered, that, that if I lost my wife and I lost my daughter, two of the most important things in the world to me, that I could still continue to live because I want God more than that. That's a question that I, I want to ask us today. Do we want God more than life? Deuteronomy ends, and it's the conclusion of the Torah, which were the first five books of the Bible. And all throughout the first five books, we see this theme woven throughout of the relationship between Yahweh and humanity, God and Israel. And it's interesting because the, the, the last chapter in Deuteronomy doesn't end with a statement about God's chosen people, but it ends with a statement about the one who chose God more than anyone else. And that was Moses. I'm convinced that Moses was, was a prophet unlike anyone else until Christ himself, the great prophet, came because Moses simply loved God more than anyone else. That's what made him so great. That's what made him so incredible. I believe that Moses was, was arguably one of the greatest leaders the world has ever seen. To lead that many millions upon millions of people through a desert. I mean, if I said, hey guys, let's all drive to Southern California. I'm taking you all to Disneyland right now. I'd maybe get a quarter of you. The rest of you would say, man, I gotta go to work tomorrow. I have graduation things I need to be a part of. I, I'm sorry, I can't. Even if I said it's on me, all expense paid, still, you know, maybe a quarter of us would make that trip. The high school students are like, yeah, I'm all in. I'll, I'll ditch finals for that for sure. But Moses leads millions of people, not to Disneyland, but, but through a desert. And this is what Hebrews says about him in Hebrews 11, which is just this chapter, the, the hall of fame of faith. It says this in, in verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country, of, that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I love that statement that says they were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Do we have that same kind of faith? That we could welcome things from a distance. That, that we could be strangers and aliens and foreigners in this land. Wednesday night, my wife and I celebrated our, our fourth wedding anniversary. And uh, we were just sitting on, on our porch and we were just kind of talking. And... Uh, we were talking about just different things, and we were talking about just, you know, how these past four years have just been incredible. We were also talking about just some of the things that we were sensing the Lord was stirring in our hearts and, and some of the desires and some of the dreams. And, and I asked my wife the question. I said, man, I, I want to love God 
like this. And I'd just been studying for this message, and I said, I, I want to love God on this kind of level. I said, honey, this is where the rubber really meets the road for me. I said, I love living in Oregon. I grew up here. I just, I love it. I mean, this is home. I said, tomorrow, if God called us to go somewhere, somewhere that we really, truly didn't want to go, somewhere like, like Idaho, and uh, I, I apologize if you're from Idaho. I've never been to Idaho. I'm sure it's great, but I have no desire to go to Idaho. I just don't. There's just nothing about me. My friends live there. They want me to plant a church. And it's just, there's no desire to go to Idaho. I mean, I just, I love it here. I'm a West Coast kid, and, and I don't want to ever leave. And I said, if God called us to go to Idaho, I said, honey, that would be a testing point for us. I don't know if I could truly do it. I mean, I love the Lord, and if he was calling us, I know that at the end of the day, I believe we would go. But would we be willing to be foreigners and strangers and aliens in a land that wasn't our own? Simultaneously, we had this conversation, and I said, you know, it's crazy to me that we've been married for four years. And I remember the day that I bought the ring for my wife. I was standing over the bridge at Lloyd Center, over the ice rink, and, and I'm staring at this jeweler, and I'm thinking, do I, am I really willing to make this step? Am I really, really willing to go in and to buy this ring? And I just sat there, and I'm, I'm pacing the sky bridge at the Lloyd Center Mall for about half an hour, and local shop owners probably thought I was crazy, and they're probably thinking I was going to plot some kind of, of heist or something. And I'm thinking, man, I do because I love my wife. I remember the, the, the evening I proposed to her in, back in Nashville, Tennessee, and I remember thinking, man, I, I wonder if I'll ever love her more than I do in this moment that I, I would truly make the decision to give my life over to her. And I remember the, the, the day that we said uh, our vows to one another. I remember thinking, man, I can't imagine loving another person on planet Earth as much as I love her. And now four years later, we've journeyed through life, through the victories, through the, the defeats, through the trials and the hardships, and through those, those perfect moments. I find myself just loving her more than, than ever before. And we talked about this, and I, I said, you know, I feel like I've known you for a lifetime. And it's only been four years. Now, some of you are sitting here, and you're thinking, you're just, you're just opening up this chapter in this great book of life. I mean, you're just, you're on page one, son. I mean, you're just, you're just getting it going. I mean, wait, let's talk in 40 years, you know? But, but, but I, I'm so in love with her, and, and I feel like, I, I mean, for how long we've known each other, I just feel like we love each other so much. And this past year, I've celebrated, I got to celebrate 25 years with, with rock, walking in a relationship with Jesus. And uh, I've been asking myself the question a lot. Do I, do I honestly love the Lord like I should after walking in a relationship with him for 25 years? After living that long with him, I mean, is my love for him on that level? And we're talking about these kinds of things. And, and I want to be a person that honestly loves God more than I love anything else in my life. And I want us, I want us to be a church, a community, the bride of Christ that loves him more than we love anything else. And I love the story about the young man named William Borden. Uh, lived about 100 years ago, and in 1904, he graduated from college, uh, he graduated from high school, excuse me, at the age of 16. Already an overachiever, already a millionaire. You see, his family owned uh, the Borden Dairies, and it was one of the most uh, largest dairies uh, in that region of the country at the time. At the age of 16, he was already set for life. And his parents, as a graduation present, allowed him to go on a trip around the world. Some of you that are here celebrating your graduation today, I mean, what an amazing graduation present we could have. 
And so he went on a trip around the world and he went to Asia, he went to the Middle East and he went to Europe. And it was there that, that God began to stir in him a desire to, to help the world. It was there that God began to, to break his heart for people. And it was there that, that he, he sent a telegram home and, and he said this to his parents. He says, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. That same day, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. It was these words, no reserves. That fall after returning from this, this global trip, he, he enrolled in Yale. And he attempted to do all that he could to fit in with all of the other freshmen. He didn't want to stand out because of his wealth, and yet he did. He, he stood out like a sore thumb, not because of his wealth, but because of his love for God. And this is what one of his classmates said about him. He said, he came to college far ahead spiritually of any of us. He had already given his heart in full surrender to Christ and had really done it. We who were his classmates learned to lean on him and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of the settled purpose to God. That fall semester, he, he wrote this in his journal and it became kind of a, a model for his life. And he said this, he said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. He had an opportunity to begin to live that out in the coming weeks as he started an early morning prayer gathering. And every morning he would get up at four o'clock with one other student and they would pray together. Soon another student found out and they joined and then a fourth. And by the end of their freshman year, 150 students at Yale were getting up every morning to pray. By the end of his senior year, 1,000 of the 1,300 students were part of those morning prayer groups. But it wasn't just on campus that, that Borden had an influence. He began to, to reach out to those in need, those that were homeless, those that were widows. And he began to, to often just spend his evenings and to, into the early morning hours, taking people out to dinner, checking them into hotels. He began to, to kind of have just a broken heart for the overwhelming population of New Haven that was struggling with alcoholism. And so he, he started the Yale Hope Mission as a place for them to go and, and to find rehabilitation. God began to move more and more and more in his heart. After graduating from Yale, just a flood of job offers came in. He turned down every single one of them. Though, again, he would make money that we can't even imagine a college graduate making. He wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. These two words were no retreats. That following year, he enrolled in Princeton. That following year, God began to narrow his focus to the Muslim Kansu people of China. And so he began to, to focus on how can I be the greatest missionary to these people? How can I bring about the gospel to them? After finishing Princeton, he sailed for China. He stopped in Egypt in order to learn Arabic, in order to speak the language of the people. While he was there, he contracted spinal meningitis. At the age of 25, William Borden was dead. He never even made it to China. He never even got to share the gospel with a single soul there. When, when news reached the United States, the story was carried by almost every single newspaper across the country. What this young man had done had, had impacted literally thousands of people here in the States. One person wrote this, a wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural 
that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice? Was his life a waste? Not according to God's plan. Before he passed away, William Borden wrote, wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. Beneath no reserves and no retreats, he wrote no regrets. I believe that Moses lived a life uh, of no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. He truly loved God more than he loved life. But the thing that I love about Jesus is that he always writes the greatest Indians. I want to quickly turn to, to one last chapter, and it's Mark chapter 9. In the second gospel here, we see something so just incredible. And I, I didn't ever see this until, until recently. Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it says this. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Historians believe that this high mountain was Mount Moran. Geographers tell us this, that Mount Moran was in the promised land. Not only does Moses get to go into the promised land, but he's with this who's who of the faith, with Elijah, with Peter, James, and John. And best of all, he's with Jesus. Don't you love that about what God does here in this moment? He, after all these years, he allows him to go into the promised land and to be with the Messiah himself. I'm convinced that, that, that God indeed writes the greatest endings. And as we sit here this morning, we might be at a place where we'd say, man, God, I've given my life to you. And I'm not at the place that I thought I would be. Or I find myself still struggling with some of these, these very same things after all these years. God's not done writing the story. God's not over. There's still things that I believe he wants to do in us, in this church, in this city. I hope that, it, that it's true of us that, that when our, our lives are done, that we can say that we've lived a life with no reserves, no regrets. That we can say we gave our all for him, that we truly wanted him more than life.